I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and it's good to have you listening. Astrophysicist Ethan Siegel theorized a while back that if we found or built the right wormhole and then traveled at just the right speed, we could catapult ourselves back in time. Traveling backwards in time, he said, might be the wildest thing we've ever imagined. Well, I'd say Emily St. John Mandel's new time-traveling novel is wild indeed. Space and time shrink between the eve of a great war and 23rd century colonies on distant stars. Earth is somewhere some people come to vacation. There's exploration and adventure, despair and joy in the new story, a pandemic and law of physics defying travel across space and time. Emily St. John Mandel is the author of novels that include Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel. And her new novel is titled Sea of Tranquility. And we find her on the West Coast this morning. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I know that science informs a lot of your work and I'm 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 really interested in how how far you read into the ideas of negative mass and wormholes and special relativity and the science of time travel? What'd you do with that? You know, this is one of those moments where I want to say that I did a ton of research, but the truth is I didn't. I just kind of made it up. <laughs> um, <I've always laughs> you did? Been, wow. I, I did. I just, yeah. And, you know, I guess that partly comes down to my general proclivities as a writer, where there are some science fiction writers who go really deep into the science in a way that's invigorating. It's fun to read. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Shishin Liu with the, the three-body problem and the dark forest. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm blanking on the name of the third book in that trilogy. But, you know, he has these big ideas that are explored in a very seemingly scientifically plausible way. And it's wonderful. And I love it. I've always gone in the opposite direction. Um, both with Station Eleven, which concerns, if we're being honest here, a pretty scientifically implausible flu pandemic. (laughs) And and Uh, with, yeah, that's the most reassuring thing I'm going to say, by the way. (laughs) Right, right. And and this new book. And what it comes down to for me is that one of my values as a writer is velocity. I want the book to move fast. And I'm much more interested in people than I am in you know, the scientific underpinnings of, say, time travel, or mm-hmm. in the case of the Glass Hotel, the precise financial underpinnings of you know, this fraudulent investment scheme in that book. So yeah, I was winging it. I completely made it up. I did not specify any science. <laughs> but um, I had done a lot of reading over the years about the simulation hypothesis. And uh-huh. that is you know, that really fun idea that maybe we're all living in a simulation. And it was fun to get into that in this book. So, so this is interesting to hear you say this because the science does not sound so futuristic or so, you know, out of the realm of probability that, you know, there's kind of a, well, there's a total fictional quality to it. It sounds kind of adjacent to, this is why it intrigued me enough to kind of delve into what astrophysicists say. I mean, you've captured this this, um, sensibility that there would be a way to go back scientists can imagine a way to go back in time. The thing that 
we can't do is go forward and you allow your characters to go back and forth. I mean, I, I guess I want to I want to understand how you conceived of this idea of the Time Institute, which permits people to go back or go forward and then kind of come back to their present. Sure. Um, so this book is very much a product of its historical moment. And what I mean by that is that I wrote it in 2020. Um, we were mm-hmm. all a little deranged that year, if we can be honest mm-hmm. here. Um, you know, I was in New York City for the duration of the pandemic. Um, something about the strangeness of that year, I think, it was almost like I almost felt like I had this weird kind of permission to write this incredibly strange book. It was this feeling of I've always wanted to write a time travel novel. Everything's awful, you know, ambulance sirens day and night. I'm just going to go for it. Life short. So that was that was very much the impetus. I wanted to write a time travel novel I because I've always loved time travel stories. I found myself in this strange and awful time, as we all did, as COVID-19 was breaking. Um, and yeah, I just, I just kind of went for it. And then as I was thinking through what time travel would be like, it seemed to me that because of the obvious risks that, you know, um, the way an unscrupulous time traveler could go back and make catastrophic changes to the timeline, that there would be a pretty formidable bureaucracy in place. So that was where the idea of the Time Institute came from, just that if we had this wild new technology, it would need to be very intensely regulated. So there, there is this conversation between an ethical scientist at the Time Institute and her brother, who has volunteered for time travel, who just, so who, let's say, has some more open ideas about what time traveling could mean. And the scientist, the sister tells him, sending someone back in time inevitably changes history. The traveler's presence itself is a disruption. That... That is the most interesting idea in a time when, you know, a global pandemic has been followed by a brutal and pretty traditional militaristic war unfolding Mm -hmm. in Europe. And I think it brings us back to that question that people who are interested in history ask, which is, what if this and not that? What if that that had happened and not this? Yeah, go ahead. Now that Yeah, that idea fascinates me, and it always has. Um, yeah, the counterfactual. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's so easy to apply that to any moment in history. Like, if you consider how easily the First World War could have not broken out, you know, if mm-hmm. that assassination hadn't happened in Europe, um, applying that to COVID-19, what if just one very senior official... Um, in Wuhan had taken the doctors seriously when this new pneumonia arose um, instead of trying to suppress it and pretend it wasn't happening. Like how different would the world be right now? So it's, it's always been fascinating to me to apply that to history. But then, of course, it does always come back to the personal where, you know, we all have these inflection points in our lives. I, I remember an anniversary dinner for my grandparents when I was a kid and my grandfather, Bill, told a story about when he was dating Ella, my grandmother, and she was kind of going back and forth between two men who one day decided to test her. You know, they were going for a walk down the street and Bill said, I'm going this way. And the other guy said, well, I'm going to go that way. 
And what we all realized was that if Ella had gone with the other guy instead of with Bill, then none of us would be there. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's an idea that fascinates me. And the thing is though, like applying, you know, if going back to what you were just saying about the way the traveler's presence itself is a disruption, that is kind of the problem with time travel narratives, generally speaking, is that it's hard to really conceive of how time travel works and how you're not always creating a loop, you know? So for example, if there were a time machine here in this office and I were to step into it in a half hour and go back to say Victoria in 1912, mm -hmm. haven't I created a loop where I was always going to go back to Victoria in 1912? <laughs> and then what does that do to free will and cause and effect? And right. if you don't have those things in a fictional character, you're kind of doomed. <laughs> so that was where the simulation hypothesis came in for me. I felt like the only way to make time travel work as an idea, just kind of logically, was by layering on another level of weirdness. So that's why there's a character in that same, I don't know if it's exactly the same section, but the same time period at the Time Institute saying, we don't understand why time travel works as well as it does. We think the fact that it works at all means that there's something else going on and that maybe we're living in a simulation. I'm curious whether you ever play the what if game with yourself or with your friends. I mean, this, this is a thought experiment I love to do with my friends. Like if we're taking a long hike or something, what's the moment that you look back and say, there was the hinge, that was the moment or that was the decision. Do you, do you think about that for your own life? Oh, constantly. Yeah. Um, do you, you know? Yeah. Just like, so in broad strokes, and then I'll get to my very specific hinge moment. Um, I'm from Canada and I trained in contemporary dance. That was my education. I have mm -hmm. zero formal training as a writer. So I do have a sense a lot of the time that the life I didn't lead, the life where I stayed in Canada and kept dancing, is somehow way more plausible than the life I'm actually living, which is, you know, the life of a novelist in New York City. Um, if, yeah, my specific hinge moment, when I was in my early 20s, I was walking down a street in Toronto where I lived at the time, and I just randomly decided to pick up this weekly news magazine, um, iMagazine, and it had a review of a novel that I found really compelling, which led me eventually to the novelist, and we started dating. And that relationship didn't last, but through one of his friends, I met my husband, and now we have a daughter. So if I had not wow. picked up that magazine in Toronto, A, I don't think I ever would have come to the United States. Uh, you know, I considered it a foreign country. Um, B, I would not have met my husband and C, my daughter wouldn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, wow. it's kind of amazing and haunting to recognize that, you know, that's the moment that I can readily identify. But how many millions other moments have there been like that where I turned left instead of right at a street corner or ordered a coffee or didn't. And we all have those. And um, it's, it's kind of fascinating to consider them in fiction, you know, to, yeah. It, well, it, it's, it's also interesting to consider it under the idea of destiny. Like, was Emily St. John always in some ways destined to turn her creativity and her talents into writing. And yes, it would have been a path that looks different from the way the, the path that you've lived looks, but that at some, for some reason, this is where you were meant to be. 
And you had stories to tell, and this was the way you were going to tell those stories. What do you think? It's possible. It's very possible. Um, I have always loved writing, and I really need to credit my mother for that in large part. Um, she homeschooled me when I was a kid, and there was a period mm -hmm. of time when I was about eight when I had to write something every day. So that got me in the habit of writing. So it's possible that I was always going to be some kind of writer. Um, I don't know that it was inevitable that that I was always going to write these books. You know, I feel like the books we write as novelists are so much a reflection of our interests and experiences. And then if I if I think about that, um, there is this extraordinary phenomenon that I've seen a lot over the last few years where people get tattoos from my novel Station Eleven on their skin. And the first time I saw that in real life, it kind of blew my mind. It just, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. kind of disorienting. It was like, you know, in the novel, there's a character who has the words survival is insufficient tattooed on her mm. left arm. When I actually saw that on somebody's left arm, it was totally disorienting. It's like, wait, that was fictional. Um, so like that alone, you know, if I hadn't written that book, all these people in the world would have different tattoos. <laughs> Maybe that's a small example, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it feels like there was nothing really inevitable about it. Did you, I mean, what do you understand, or maybe you asked about why someone chooses to, you know, indelibly, um, you know, reproduce a line from a novel on their skin? What, what does... What are they saying? And how are you seeing that? It's incredibly moving to me. And it's not really about me. You know, I feel like the relationship that a reader has with one of my books is almost none of my business. You know, it's like this, this closed separate thing that's outside of me. Um, as a reader, I understand it. You know, the idea of reading a line that you just want to carry with you through all the days of your life. When I was in my early 20s, I read a novel called Fugitive Pieces by Anne Michaels, a Canadian author. She had a line in that book, find a way to make beauty necessary, find a way to make necessity beautiful. And I wrote that in the front of every notebook of mine for, I want to say, 15 years. You know? So I get the instinct. Um, it's tremendously moving to me when somebody tattoos words for my book. You know, it's... It's just, it's kind of extraordinary to see that out in the world. When you say the relationship that the reader has to your novels is really none of your business, I mean, are you, disengaged isn't the right word. Are you really that agnostic about the experience that the reader has for something you've created? I am and I'm not. Um, I really care about writing a good book. Like I, it's important to me that people find my work interesting and I hope they find some of it beautiful. As a reader though, I've always really resented that thing where, you know, when you're reading a novel and then the message hits you over the head, like a sledgehammer, you know, it's like this authorial like message comes down and, and uh, knocks you out. Um, I really resent that as a reader. I don't like being told what I'm supposed to take away from a narrative. So, you know, the, the poet, sorry, the po not the poet, the writer and critic, Edmund Wilson, um, had an idea I really liked. He said, no two readers ever read the same book. 
And I just really like that idea that Mm -hmm. 10 people could read one of my novels and come away with 10 different ideas about what that book was about. And to me, there's, there's a sense of, I guess, almost freedom in that or like um, vividness or it's kind of invigorating. Um, And like, to me, that feels somehow more alive than I need those 10 people to come away with one message and understand that book X was about Y. (laughs) That feels kind of like um, oppressive to me somehow. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the peril of the book tour, isn't it? That you will ask, be asked more and more prescriptive questions that will kind of require prescriptive answers. And then you, I, I guess I wonder how you think about getting in the way of your philosophy, which is you will read it with all the experience and knowledge that you have, and it will be a different experience for each writer. How do you balance yeah. that? Um, I like the segue into the book tour. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I balance that by talking about what I was thinking as I wrote the book. So, mm. you know, this comes up most often with Station Eleven. You know, what was the message behind Station Eleven? Um, what I was personally thinking about when I wrote that book was about the fragility of civilization and the importance of art and friendship and human connection and love. Um, that doesn't mean that that has to be what that book means to everybody, you know? So yeah, I'm often asked, um, well, what was the message behind the book? And I'm fine with that question. Uh, what I'm not fine with is when I say, well, there actually wasn't a single prescriptive message. And the interviewer follows that up with, are you sure? <laughs> it's like, yes, I wrote the book. <laughs> I am sure. Thank you. <laughs> you've, you've used the word strange a couple of times to describe, mm-hmm. you know, the, I, I don't want to say the impulse, but to describe what led you into telling the story the way you have. And, I don't want to assume what you mean by by that word. So when you've used it to describe Station Eleven and the current book and the time that we were living in mm-hmm. as you wrote it, what what are you what are you saying? That's interesting. I didn't realize uh that I'd used it for Station Eleven. I'll have to think about that one. Um when I use it for Sea of Tranquility, there is a sci-fi autofiction section in that book. And I feel like that's objectively weird. You know, there's this sort of uh, Emily St. John Mandel Mandel avatar out on the road, uh, but she lives in a moon colony. So (laughs) like Uh that's strange, right? I mean, and I don't mean strange in any kind of pejorative way. It's just like an objectively weird move as a writer. Um, Yeah, so there is this section that's intensely autobiographical with the writer uh, Olive Llewellyn out on tour in the service of a popular novel about a pandemic. Uh, but she lives in a moon colony and it's the year 2203. So that's, I guess I find something objectively, we could say unusual if we wanted about that. Um, there's also something about mashing together multiple genres. Um, no Sea of Tranquility is historical fiction. It's also auto fiction. It's also sci-fi. That's like, um, yeah, but I guess I would find objectively a little strange. And I also gave all of my Station Eleven lecture, which I delivered for years, about um, about post-apocalyptic fiction and the end mm. of the world. So, yeah, there's just a lot going on in that book. And then, you know, turning to the timeline in which we actually live, uh, 
I don't know what your last two years have been, but it might have been strange. <laughs> yeah. None of us were prepared for this pandemic. And the way it simultaneously constrained and upended our lives, um, I think has been pretty traumatic and destabilizing for pretty much everybody. I want to follow up on that, but I want to say if you've just tuned in to my Friday book show, I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm in conversation with Emily St. John Mandel. She's the author of novels that include Station Eleven and the Glass Hotel, and her new novel is titled Sea of Tranquility. So here's what I've tried to resist uh, thinking about in the last two years that feel that I think when I look back on my life are going to feel singular, you know, over the span of my life. But, but I also don't want to feel like I'm, you know, I'm living some moment in, in the hinge of history. You know what I mean? Like, is it, am I paying attention? I wrestle with this. Am I paying attention to this war in Europe? Because it is a war in Europe and it is, you know, white people who are being bombed. When there have been wars going on in Yemen and other places and Syria for years, I, you see what I, I'm, I'm yeah. wrestling constantly with, is it my frame of reference or yes, the global pandemic, but is there something, is my frame of re reference slanted um, and, and another two years, four years ago, could have felt like this too if I'd understood what was really going on. Is this too weird? Right. Or do you? No, I like it. It's interesting. Um, I feel like it's kind of two separate things where I think that objectively in the pandemic, we're living in the hinge of history. This has been one of those moments where you know, there was this wonderful riff in the New York Times, which I, was, I wish that I'd memorized verbatim about a year and a half ago. And it was about this awareness of living in the worst chapters of the civics textbook. But, you know, mm. I remember reading about the 1918 pandemic and just thinking, oh, my God, how devastating. You know, what an awful moment to live through. And I think we should acknowledge that that is a moment that we've just lived through. That, you know, a million Americans are dead. <laughs> it's like it's, it's mm. horrifying. Um, so that, to me, is kind of an objectively hinge moment in the arc of history. But I think you've touched on something really interesting and kind of dark in, in terms of the war in Ukraine, which is, you know, it's incredibly heartening to see the way Europe has opened its borders to Ukrainian refugees. Um, I think you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist or like incredibly super woke to wonder why that response was so different for Syrian refugees. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there is something about majority white countries opening their doors wide open to white refugees that's very obvious and uncomfortable to watch. I do have moments of wondering if that might lead to a greater openness to refugees in general. But you know what? Um, if you were willing to take in Ukrainians, you should be willing to take in play people who don't look like you, you know, from other mm -hmm. places. So that could ultimately, uh, you know, I, I could imagine that having some positive impact on, on how these countries deal with refugees in the future. But yeah, I don't know that the war in Ukraine is objectively worse than what happened to Syria. 
It's a, mm -hmm. but, I, but I know what you mean about it feeling that way. I think the reason it might feel that way is because, I don't know about you, but the history that I learned as a child was very Eurocentric. So mm, right, right. I think we might be on this continent, people who are educated on this continent, um, I think we might be used to thinking about European wars as being somehow like great wars, you know, it's a, mm, it's a horrible right. phrase, but it comes up. Um, so it, it kind of resonates in a weird way with this, this history that we were taught as a child. So yeah, the other, thing I, the other thing I've been wrestling with is something that you just alluded to, which is there will be something redeeming in some ways that will come out of, you know, this global pandemic that has killed so many people on the planet or this terrible war where so many people are suffering in Europe. And, and the redeeming quality could be we're better prepared for the next pandemic or, um, you know, our, our immigration policies are going to be forever altered because mm -hmm. of this. But in some ways, you know, I read the kind of fiction you're writing and look at the true arc of history and think we so often don't learn the lesson and we so often let, you know, this moment of kind of redemption slip away and we go back to our, our worlds pretty much the way they were. You see something that, that might be different this time. And I sense you think about that in, in, the fiction that you're writing. I do think about that. Yeah, both in fiction and just in my personal life. Um, Aaron Dottie Roy had a wonderful turn of phrase in an op-ed a while back, something to the effect of a pandemic is a portal. And I was thinking about that in the context of the lecture that Olive gives in Sea of Tranquility, which used to be my Station Eleven lecture that I'd travel around the United States delivering. And there's a whole section in there about this idea that we tend to believe that we're living in the worst possible time, you know, that it, we're living like the peak of history. I, like the I actually transcribed that, that section. Oh, Should did I you? <laughs> yeah. I'm so yeah, glad we got to this. I wanted Do to you talk to you. Yeah, I have it right in front of me. Um, she says, Olive Llewellyn says, I think as a species, we have a desire to believe that we're living at the climax of the story. It's a kind of narcissism. We want to believe that we're uniquely important, that we're living at the end of history. And then she adds, but all of this raises an interesting question. What if it always is the end of the world? Okay, pick up what you were saying. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, what if it always is the end of the world? And what I mean by that is, just by way of example, a number of years ago, my mother came to visit me in New York, and we went to this exhibition of illuminated manuscripts um, at the Morgan Library. And there was this wonderful little book. It was centuries old. It was an English translation of a French poem that had been created by, had been transcribed, written down by um, an 11-year-old Elizabeth I as a New Year's gift for her stepmother. Mm -hmm. And my mother made a really interesting point, which is that the world in which that little book was created, in the grand arc of human history, it was not that long ago. 
by several hundred years. It was about six lifetimes laid end to end. But the world in which that book was written has ended. It's long since gone. And you can't point to any grand cataclysm that ended it, but it's ended nonetheless. And it kind of follows, well, what if the world is always ending? And what if new worlds are always rising up to take the old world's place, but so subtly and so slowly that usually it's not obvious, except in retrospect. But then to go back to Arundhati Roy and her idea that a pandemic is a portal, it feels to me like a hinge moment in history like this, like a pandemic, just kind of speeds you through that process. So it's like a wormhole. You, know, you come out into this mm. future that's quite sudden and can be quite different. So yeah, when I think about how the world has changed as a result of the pandemic, and I want to be clear that I wish there hadn't been a pandemic. You know, it's been devastating. Um, the work, our working lives, you know, that's a big thing. All of a sudden, it feels incredibly old-fashioned for a person with an office job to go to the office in person five days a week. It's just like, <laughs> it does. wait, really? You commute five days a week? <laughs> and that, that is so new. That's, that's really startling. Um, I think there could be a positive impact around mental health, which in fairness, maybe that was developing anyway. But the idea that you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of needing to take care of yourself. Um, I have a lot of friends in therapy who are very open about that as, and you know what, I've got therapy tomorrow morning, but then I could do X or Y, you know, that kind of mm. thing. That feels really new to me. Um, and then, yeah, what you alluded to in terms of being prepared for the next pandemic, there's actually a pretty good test case that backs up that idea. I am fascinated by the period of uh, when COVID-19 was first emerging where we knew what was coming. You now that's the line over and over again in Olive's book. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew what was coming, but we somehow didn't believe it. You know, I mean, we're smart people who can read and follow the news, but it somehow didn't feel real to me that this catastrophe unfolding in China and then Italy was somehow going to wash over us in New York, which, you know, New York City has three international airports. Like it was, <laughs> it was always going to happen, but it didn't no feel No reason real. not to believe it, right? No reason not to believe it, except it felt improbable because it had been a century since a pandemic had happened in my part of the world. It had not been a century since a pandemic had happened in the Congo. Um, so I remember reading a fascinating story about how the countries that had suffered from the Ebola outbreak a few years ago initially did much better than we did in terms mm -hmm. of avoiding infection because they didn't have that leap of imagination. It felt real to them because they remembered it and they knew how to avoid it and they took steps like wearing masks. So that will be all of us next time. You know, the, the next pandemic will snap immediately back into like our Delta variant mode, <laughs> you know, <laughs> batten down the hatches. You know, this, this parallels this idea that new worlds I love your mother's observation. That's so wise. And I'll think about it the next yeah, time in a museum. Um, but this idea that out of a period of time, new worlds rise, and it's very difficult when you're in, when you're living in it to understand it, but historians, that's their work. It, it parallels something that I've been reading in Ben Rhodes. He was Obama, one of Obama's speechwriters, And He's written a new book, and there was an excerpt in The Atlantic, and 
I thought of it as I was reading the book. I thought of I thought of your novel, and this is something that um, he's thinking about what this war in Ukraine means, shaking democracies from complacency, forcing mm-hmm. citizens to discard the luxury of cynicism, rejecting the inevitability of autocracy, and perhaps a new world can be born. We have reached a hinge of history. There's that phrase. At issue is not just the future of Ukraine, but that if the world that will emerge on the other side of this war, if we heed the lessons of this moment, we can rebuild from the rubble a renewed international order that once again places democratic values over the more transitory impulses of profit and immediate gratification. You know, I want to believe that, but then I look at the experience of history again and again, and you would have to, in some ways, discount for human nature and what has been happening in the last decade with, you know, even some countries in Europe, Poland, Hungary, mm-hmm. leaning into these autocracies. And I just think, is it is it my inability just to see it because I'm living through it? Or does history tell us that new worlds, that is extremely rare and and there's a lot of forces pushing back against that. That's interesting. There are, I feel like there are always new worlds, but they're not necessarily positive. But you know, the, uh, the reality that we live in in the United States where segments of the population sincerely believe totally divergent versions of reality that's a new world, mm-hmm. you know, definitely from <laughs> yeah. even the time I wrote Station Eleven, which was not that long ago. <laughs> you know, that's an awful new world in which we found ourselves. It doesn't always have to be negative. Um, you know, I think it's been shocking in the most incredible way to see that the West was much more unified than we'd imagined. That, you know, the sanctions came down on Russia in a very extreme, very immediate way it kind of seems like the Ukrainians are winning, which um, that that's incredible. That's not an outcome that I think very many people would have predicted. But I think there is always a new world appearing around us. I think it doesn't have to be a positive world. <laughs> that's why it's, yeah, like it can be hard to perceive. You know, one of the things, I'm really glad we're talking about this because I have been curious about how you think about the the physical creation of the new worlds, um, you know, often the worlds that you're creating are beautiful after almost everything in the world has been destroyed. I mean, they're verdant in some places, they're clean, they're lush. I mean, the Station Eleven world is, I think, more overgrown than the colonies in this novel. But, you know, even in this novel, there are rivers and trees and white spired building. You know what it reminded me of is what you hear. I've never been to Singapore, but mm-hmm. it, it rem- these colonies that you've created in Sea of Tranquility remind me of what S- Singapore might be like. But oh, you go, you make a special effort to make these worlds also physically and aesthetically beautiful. Why? I think I might be writing the worlds that I personally want to live in. That might be part of it. Um, really? 
Huh. Or actually, you know what? That's a weird thing to say about a book like Station Eleven. Um, but okay, so when I was imagining what Station Eleven looks like in year 20, my starting point was we've all seen these scenes of not quite urban, but maybe like ex-urban ruination mm. where, you know, imagine the cracked parking lot with grass and even small trees growing up through the pavement. We've all seen something like that. And if you extrapolate that idea over an entire world, it's kind of beautiful. You know, that's a world of vines growing over mailboxes and spilling out into streets and trees growing through the roofs of collapsed houses. It's not a world I'd want to live in because I like things like antibiotics and you know, electricity and all these things we take for granted. Um, but it is a beautiful world, you know, just the state of nature that we'd return to. With Sea of Tranquility, the starting point for the moon colonies was actually an imaginary world that I built with my daughter. So, you know, she she had recently turned four when the pandemic broke out, and she's not a kid who had ever had imaginary friends until all of a sudden we were in lockdown and preschool was gone. And then all of a sudden she became, we invented this imaginary kingdom together called the Enchanted Forest. And she was queen of the Enchanted Forest and just had like this, there was a huge cast of characters. Like it, it's wonderful. It's like talking foxes and magic owls and like, fairies and unicorns. And there was this thing where you could step through a portal from the forest into different worlds. One of those worlds was the moon city. So I built it up just by telling her stories about, you know, we're in the enchanted forest, we step through into the moon city. And it was, it was the way I described it in the book. Um, yeah. I imagined a city that was all like white cobblestones and high spires and rivers running through it and trees and bridges um, under a dome. And I just kind of loved it. I could picture it so vividly. So I um, I used that world that we created together in, in Sea of Tranquility. So um, you said interesting when I said, you know, Singapore came into came into my mind because it it's prist from what I read, its pristine qualities are from a very authoritarian kind of you know, philosophy, like we will yeah. all take care of this beautiful place and you will do it whether you like it or right. There is, there is no really free expression, I guess, right. with. My, yeah. With my understanding landscape. is, my understanding is it's a very peaceful, tranquil place to live unless you want to huh. like protest for democracy. Or <laughs> right. Right. You're listening to a conversation with Emily St. John Mandel about her new novel, uh, sea of Tranquility, and I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. I, I am curious, since uh, the TV treatment of Station Eleven, what did it come? It came out during the pandemic, right? How long has it been out? Yeah, um, it aired in December, so it's been yeah, okay. so it's been out for about three months. It's very new, yeah. So, are you one of those writers who says? I always think a little glibly, well, I write the novel and I know that when I'm handing it over for, you know, to, to bring it to the, some kind of screen treatment that I'm not going to have a lot of influence in that. Or are you someone who says, I want that sensibility that I created in the novel to exist in, you know, whatever ends up on the screen? 
Some writers are just, I let it go, let go, and do with it what you will. How do you feel about it? You know, for me, it's dependent on the book. So what I would say is like, just because something's glib doesn't mean it isn't true. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, with Station Eleven, I was very influenced by a writer who I met at a literary festival who'd had a huge success with one of her novels and had sold it to Hollywood. And then it had turned into a very popular movie, which had very little in common with the book. Mm -hmm. And people asked her, well, you know, how do you feel about the changes to it? She said, you know, once you sell those rights, they're gone. They're not yours anymore. Um, and, you know, I cashed that check and I bought a house in Santa Cruz. I was like, okay, fair. <laughs> there's, a, there, there's something to that. Um, with Station Eleven, at the moment when it kind of became real as a project, uh, when Paramount TV and Patrick Somerville, the showrunner, became attached to it, and it became clear that it was actually probably going to be a thing. That was a moment when I just wasn't that interested in writing for television. Um, I was very, very immersed in The Glass Hotel, the book that came after that. Mm. So I had an early conversation with Patrick where he suggested that if I were interested, there could be a place for me in the writer's room. And my response, as I remember it, was, um, you know what? I have no idea how to write a screenplay. Like, I'm, I'm working on this book. Um, I trust you. Go do your thing. And what made that possible for me, like, I was somewhat detached. I always knew that it was going to be very, that the TV project would be very different from the novel. I was always fine with that. Um, but also, I did trust Patrick. I met him as a novelist in 2012. And... I just felt like having the project in the hands of a novelist meant that it wouldn't get to like, I don't know, egregiously Hollywoody or something. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I always believed that it was going to be good. Um, it was even better than I imagined. I just, I'm it such a fan good. of that series. I love it so it much. But then the Glass Hotel has been very different. Um, I just got clearance like three days ago to start talking about this publicly, but I'm actually working with Patrick Somerville and his Station Eleven colleagues to create an adaptation of The Glass Hotel. Oh, wow. Um, Good. It's so much fun. Yeah, it's been great. So that's why I've been in Los Angeles all week. Uh, sorry, all month. Um, and so that's the opposite uh, experience for me. You know, this time around, some time has passed. I've written more novels. I'm... I'm interested in, in doing something different, which is partly maybe a product of this two years of stasis that we've all kind of lived through in the pandemic, um, where I, I just feel like I've spent a lot of time alone in rooms writing novels. I'd like to tell a story collaboratively. So <laughs> this time around, I'm, I'm very interested in screenwriting. Um, I'm still learning how to do it. I deeply love it. It's really fun. So yeah, this time I'm going to be very involved in the project, The Glass Hotel. That's exciting. One last question for you. Have, have you ever had a book, you know, forever changed in your imagination because you saw what, what, was, what might have been a wonderful treatment of it on the screen, but your experience, which, which kind of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, your experience of that book is just different because now you've seen it and not just imagined it. Yeah. You know, I loved the Lord of the Rings, like all the other deeply geeky writer mm -hmm. kids. Um, 
I don't think I could ever go back to that without picturing the cast from that movie. That came out. <laughs> yes. I don't know. What was that like yes. 15 years ago or something? <laughs> but now that I know that that's what the hobbits look like, it's just like a fundamental. Right. Book. Right. Right. I mean, for me, the, the novel is the age of innocence. I okay. will never not see Winona Ryder as May. I, I love right. that novel, but she, you know, and the Countess Olenska, uh, Michelle mm-hmm. Pfeiffer. Right, right. And, and sometimes I think, so is the novel enriched for me because of that? You know, change doesn't mean it's a lesser experience. Yeah. Again, you know, there are books where I've avoided the adaptation for that reason. Yeah. I oh, deeply yeah. love The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje. Uh-huh. I will not see that movie because I don't want it to overwrite <laughs> my memories of the book. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's wise. It's a wonderful movie, but it's a wonderful movie. And so that will probably infiltrate your your imagination. Emily, thank you so much. This has been it's been really interesting and and uh I've loved the conversation. Well, I have too. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Emily St. John Mandel's new novel is called Sea of Tranquility. Mm-hmm.